Welcome to a Leader's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Joel Gunn. Today I have with me Denny, a friend I've known uh, almost five years now. Uh, flew all the way here to the Caribbean from LA. Thanks for coming out just for my podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Great to be here with you, Joel. <laughs> you weren't coming to see the beach or the ocean. No, or, no. Just I'm here, here to see that. that. That's why I'm wearing this uh, uh, business outfit here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for taking time out of your vacation to, to hang sure. out with me. Tell, the, uh, tell me in the audience a little bit of, of your story. How'd you uh, end up where you are today? Where'd you start? Well, I, I bo- born in the Midwest um, and uh, sort of humble beginnings. My dad was a peddler, um, grew up Jew- in a Jewish family, um, went off to college and pretty much my life was around rock, rock and roll. I was a rock and roll musician all through high school and college, um, but ended up making a commitment to engineering, which, I, which is where I graduated. And after that, I, you know, for the first time got interested in the business world, not because it was a, a, you know, a goal of my life, but I did. And I was successful and then success breeds success, but also brings, um, you know, it it also confronts you with, you know, who you are as a human being too. Mm -hmm. And so I had crisis in my life and I had success in my life. And, um, you know, years later, I'm sure we'll talk about some of this you know, along the way. But years later, I, um, I, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior many years later as, a, as an adult. And that both affected me as a person, but it also had a big, a profound impact on me as a businessman. Mm-hmm. So here we are years later, sitting here today, sharing stories about, uh, you know, how business successes and struggles and personal successes and struggles. And yeah, here we are. So the other night at dinner, we got to know each other a little bit better. Turned out uh, we had more in common than I realized. So you start off as, as an engineer. How'd you get from, what were, were some of those early transition points from engineering into, you know, eventually owning businesses and, and running larger yeah. companies? You know, it's even, it's even the transition from being a, a musician in college to seeking a career. Um, you know, I was a keyboardist and I, at the time, this goes way back into the early 70s when electronic synthesizers and electronic uh, music technology was just at its infancy. And so I was, I was intrigued by all of that. And um, I was not academically very good. I, I had sort of just gotten by all of my academic life. And even early in college, I just had very little interest in that. But once I started pursuing something that I cared about, which was understanding, well, if that's what music is going to be about and I want to be part of it, I guess I better learn that. And I, um, I got turned on, like a switch turned on me uh, when I entered engineering school and every, and at that point I started applying myself and started doing well. Uh, but, but I saw my life prior to that as a sort of just kind of riding through life, playing rock and roll music and getting by. I just never really thought about purpose until that, until that change happened. And, and for me, that introduced me to ambition and success. Mm. And for good or bad, I, I spent the next 20 years pursuing ambition and trying to re, you know, sort of feel that feeling of challenges, problems, solving problems, being paid for it, being given the rewards of success. Um, and, uh, that's, and that's probably more the reason why I went from engineering to, you know, to business success. It's really because I changed from just being a, you know, a musician. Mm-hmm. to somebody who wanted to do well and succeed. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned just before we went on the air that uh, you really never had any aspirations of 
I'm going to be this corporate guy or climb the corporate ladder or any of those things. So you moved from engineering. What was that? What was that first job or that first uh, project that really kind of got you to thinking maybe the management track or leadership track was for you? Yeah, I got out of I got out of college. I had an electronics engineering degree. I'd done some things um, in college as part of, of getting there that, that that were just at the very early stages of of um, uh, computer design. Very very young, very early. But I found a guy that had started up his own company back in my hometown. And he was trying to do something very creative with industrial heating and industrial processing and turn it into a way to um, automatically cook food. <laughs> and, you know, you see, the, you see the results of that actually everywhere. The, the, you know, the conveyorized pizza oven was part of something we created at that company. I have my name on many, many patents related to heat processing and cooking food and tunnels and all of that stuff. <laughs> but it was because of the guy I met. It was his company, and I wanted to work for this guy because this is a guy who had taken. Um, I had a similar story of being sort of a not not a very successful youth, got turned on by something, built a little company. You know, it was a family company, and he started expanding it. And he had bigger dreams than than what the company did. And I got turned on by that, and I said, "I can help you do that." And so, in a way, it was really not because I wanted to take this job; it's because I wanted to be part of that experience again that he dreamed about. I wanted to be part of his dream. Yeah. So you you saw somebody else and basically, at least for a season, hitched to their wagon. Yeah. 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 And and I never thought, even then, I was becoming successful. I, mean, I was getting promoted. I ended up, you know, eventually running the company. But as all of this was happening, it wasn't as though I was thinking, my goal is to run this company. Mm -hmm. um, that did start happening, by the way. That did start happening. And there was a destructive side to that. But it was more the, um, the feeling of success, the feeling of accomplishment, the challenge of trying, especially when you're in engineering things, where uh, in electronics and cutting edge things where you don't know if they'll actually work. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was learning how to set very, very high um, ambitions and milestones and challenges, some of which I... The, probably were not going to be achievable, but I always, I got into this, into this pattern of set, set goals higher than you can achieve and you'll hit goals higher than you would. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, C.S. Lewis, set your aim for heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in, set your aim on earth and you end up with nothing? No, that that's perfect. But, but uh, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a Christian yet. I sure. didn't know C.S. Lewis, but yes, yeah. that was it. It was, it really drove me for many, many years, this idea of, setting very lofty ambitions. And then when you do that in, a, in bigger and bigger organizations, you have to, you have to sell them to the other people. You're going to have to carry that torch along with you. You get to be a very good salesman and at least internally in that mm -hmm. process. Well, I learned how to do that too. Get everybody else on fire with my dreams. Cause that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Like I, I got into this other guy's dream and he dreamed very big and we accomplished 80% of what he wanted to, which yeah. was, and we created a whole industry by doing so. When I was getting started in corporate life, also electronics engineer, um, I heard very early on, if you want to get management's attention, you got to convert everything to numbers or dollars. Yeah. Was there something like that that clicked for you as you were trying to, you said you had to do that internal sales pitch. That's how I did my internal sales pitches was, let me convert this to numbers or dollars. Let me show you 
if we do this, this is, you know, this is the possibility. And yeah. that, that worked for me. Did you find a, a similar? I, I, absolutely. And I, it, it, when you say that, it reminds me of uh, um, a couple of, a couple of uh, you know, sort of job steps after what we just talked about. I was running a, um, a small insurance uh, operation in, in California, and it was a turnaround. This was a failing company that was, um, for all, uh, for all um, logical reasons, should not have even been able to make it. But there was a group of us that said, we're going to turn this thing around. And information was terrible. Information was unavailable. This, you know, the, the culture was government-like, you know, that kind of thing. But what I did is I had an office court from floor to ceiling. Now, this is before there were grease boards. You know, this is like there weren't PCs and, and it was, this, was, this is old school stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we got these blocks of cork and I had the floor to ceiling court in squares. And we started, you know, sending out daily little check sheets all over the plant. People would collect and we'd collect it up and we'd hang this stuff on the walls there. And eventually... When um, things got a little bit more automated and you could use these, you know, the old little original HP graph printers to, mm -hmm. to make graphs and things. And, and this became a very, very organized set of walls that would change every couple of days. And it was monitoring everything that went on mm -hmm. that was countable. We, we adopted this idea. If you can't count it, you can't do anything about it. And um, uh, that, that did reinforce this idea that once you start measuring things, you, you actually start you know, creating a, you know where you are. And so you can create a more ambitious tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And for years and years, we did that until all these things were, you know, eventually they, you were able to do these, do these and information, you know, uh, management systems. Mm -hmm. But I remember how silly it was. People were saying, you've got printers running outside your office that are just making graphs constantly, and, you know, pens being replaced. This is, not, this is nonsense. And I said, nah, no, look at this. Hey, look at the rivers is all these graphs. Like, what is all of this? When everything that moves is on this on these walls, yeah, that's great. But well, and, and, you know, we talk about dashboards today, and uh, as I work with like, executives and CEOs, you know, what's on your dashboard? Yeah, but but you can double click. Computers are great. You don't need every single chart filling the walls because you can click in and zoom in and, and get the granularity that you need. But uh, yeah, I, I can see why that would have worked for you. There was no. There was nothing like dashboard, electronic yeah. dashboards yeah. back then. But that you're right. It was the early, I'm sure people were doing it all over business saying, I've got to somehow have something that tracks what's going on and static isn't enough. I've got to see, you know, where it's been, where it is, where it's going. I've got to see it graphically. I've got to see it visually. And these things are now we have super powerful tools that will help us do that. Back then there weren't. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that became a big part of, for me, a big part of, of how you, how you set goals is you, you know, is about what do you know now? What would that suggest about where you're going to have to be? And then how do you fill in all the space in between? And, and that's combinations of financial analysis, but it's also operational analysis. It's uh, you know, sort of market, you know, um, um, positioning analysis, all that stuff, mm -hmm. which, which um, I think is, is if you're in a world where you want to say, I want to create something new and I want to be first at it, I want to be best at it. You've got to really, you've got to really gather all that, and then you have to, you have to, you have to make the case about where you're going to be years from now, mm -hmm. and believe it. Sort of really believe it internally. So, so as you ascended through the ranks and took on higher levels of leadership, when you would set those lofty goals for the team, did you ever run into naysayers or 
your 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 direct reports by Bossa, you know. Don't think that's possible. Was that a was that a common thing, or did everybody around you? No, no. There's a, you know, and and um, companies have profiles for this kind of thing. You start with the idea that you're part of an organization that has its own philosophy about about how it sets goals. And if you're the CEO, you have great you have you have great latitude for that, but you also have different um, experience um, experiences, you know, on your board. Mm. Um, so. I got people used to the idea almost everywhere I went that th it is better for us to set aggressive goals and discount them at the point when you have to, you know, put them in front of investors or um, um, even for comp systems, mm -hmm. maybe discount them. Mm -hmm. But you never, but, but that's never how you plan what you're going to do. You always plan what you're going to do based on people um, out achieving their own expectations. I also had, uh, and I think I was pretty successful in making this case. I also had this point of view that people who say, um, when you're looking for somebody who's capable of being a, you know, a great follower, you're looking for people who also can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to set out, you know, very ambitious ideas and, um, and, and, and achieve them 95% of the time. But in doing so, it, it's way beyond what I would have expected. Mm -hmm. And I saw lots of people whose, whose careers had been defined by mediocrity by others. And when I gave them challenges to do that, many of them stepped up far beyond what people thought they could do. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of media, media, otherwise mediocre. Uh, and I wouldn't say they were mediocre people. They were people who were judged to have mediocre futures turn out to be really solid leaders. Mm. That's interesting. So they rose to the level they of expectation. And some do and some don't. Yeah. And so I like that too. It's like, well, some may not, you know, you, you can, you can fail trying, mm -hmm. but, um, I'd, I'd rather do that. And I've seen tons. I, I'd say, I'd say I saw more people whose resume and, um, um, experiences and profile would suggest they're going to be great leaders because they've already been great leaders mm -hmm. who became kind of mediocre because they've already, you know, they didn't, they really didn't have that fire in their belly anymore. Mm -hmm. Or the success they had was more of a fluke, yeah, or situational, situational. Yeah. But on paper, they look great, yeah. You know, well, and I heard uh, this probably twenty-five years ago. I heard this saying, maybe thirty. Um, you know, we often promote people to their highest level of incompetence. Yeah, you know, and so you have somebody that's a rock star working up through the ranks, but eventually they hit the max of what they're designed or capable of doing. And I hate to say that because it. I don't like to put anybody in a box. I believe we can achieve far beyond what we believe we can achieve. Um, whether, whether you're a Christ follower or not, I just think humans are more capable than we give ourselves credit. Uh, and, and we see that over and over and over, you know, the getting the, the man to the moon and just you know, <laughs> my son and a and best friend and I visited NASA during COVID looking for something to do. And we're at the, the, walking through the museum area and they have one of the head engineers desk with everything that he had to at his disposal it was a slide rule, a protractor, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, some pads of paper, some pencils. We sent men to the moon with that, with that, you know, and, uh, as they were doing those early, uh, early computations and, and, uh, it's just amazing that how much we can accomplish. You look at the pyramids, like still 
scientists and engineers wonder and marvel wow. today, like how in the world did you pull that off? Yeah. You know, when I was in, you know, when I was in engineering school, I remember when the first uh, Texas Instrument Calculator came out, the TI-10 or something it was called. And I was a slide rule guy. I was a rock and roll musician, so I had this long hair. And I had this big picket slide rule hanging on my belt, walking across campus. People must have thought I was, you know, bizarre. But I remember when they would start saying, we're going to have engineering contests between the slide rule people and the, and the um, calculator people. Mm -hmm. And I would go with the slide rule to compete with it. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, uh, there were things that a, a calculator couldn't do back then, which now, you know. <laughs> but I really, I was, it's, I mean, I'm an electronic engineer and I was sort of anti um, technology. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, it's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. um, looking back, how did you, how did you encourage or deal with or choose like in those difficult situations? So somebody, they're not on board. They're not on, they're not going where they yeah. need to go. What was that? I mean, that's never easy for any leader I've ever talked to. Yeah. I, I, it makes me think you know, almost immediately of the first, um, um, long-term manager that I had to fire. And, um, he, he out, you know, he, he out tenured me by long shot. And, um, and I had to do this kind of thing many, many times afterwards, because if, if what, if you're setting very high expectations, you're giving people a chance to step up, then you're going to have a lot more likelihood that people won't be able to. And it's not for, um, sometimes these are, these are very difficult to predict. Like you said, people could be good at one thing and they're not good at the next thing. They could be good at one thing and they could be good at a certain kind of next thing, but not a different kind of next thing. Mm -hmm. And so you take a chance and you put people in a position um, and you, you know, you encourage them. Sometimes they don't make it. But I remember telling, I had to, I, I was up all night before I did this and realizing there was no one who could deal with this decision except me. This was my job. And I started thinking about my responsibility to the company. That if I don't do this, I'm letting a, a mediocre person who's going to eventually hurt the company. Um, I'm going to let that continue. I'm also going to probably um, rob this person of the learning that, that he's going to have. It was a guy. The learning he's going to have from this and the next opportunity that's going to drop in his lap where he may pay, it may provide him a different trajectory to success. Mm -hmm. And so I, that, that I always would say that this is a horrible thing. I tell people this is not personal. This is business. Um, I said that a lot when I'm giving people, um, both recognition and criticism in business, um, never personal when I'm disagreeing, never personal, never personal. I just always would tell myself, this is not about me. This is about the company and what's good for the company. Hey, hey. And that's the way I dealt with it. The problem with that is I'm a human being and sooner or later you find out you actually did do something that's personal. Mm -hmm. It's like, because you can't help it. You know, mm -hmm. I don't like this person. Mm -hmm. I don't like, you know, I, I don't like working with this person, so I'm going to move them somewhere else. And, you know, I had my share of that too. So mm -hmm. you talked about you like setting goals and if you, if you hit 80 to 95% of them, you were happy. And I, I could be biased or uninformed, but it seems like the millennials and younger, a vast majority of them wrestle with this idea of failure. And that's on us as their parents, you know, we, we gave them trophies for everything and they never really got to experience failure. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that, that, that whole, so how do, did you find a way to help people? Like, it's okay that you failed on this. We still, you know, achieve, 
Was that ever something you had to deal with much? Yeah, I, I, uh, two things. Um, the way I deal with that directly is it's always a multitude of goals. And so I would break things down one level so that the idea is you will not hit all your goals, but you'll hit enough and be able to experience success. Okay. And the context is always we have set ambitious goals. I would you know, always be very clear about this. this is an ambitious company. Um, the business um, culture is about out achieving, out achieving our competitors or creating a new, you know, a new pathway that doesn't exist today. That means we have to set ambitious goals and we have to set some goals that are hard to define up front because we're laying new track. And so my thinking always was have more, more rather than less measures. And I wrestled with bosses, board members, colleagues about that all the time. You have too many goals. You have too many things on, on paper. And I, I would still fight for it because my belief was to deal with the question you raised. Do I have to, am I a success or a failure? It's, it seemed to me from what I experienced, people did better when they had both successes and failures, unless they just plain missed everything mm -hmm. and they experienced failure. And that generally meant, you know, you should have made, so, you should have made some of these occur. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I would say is multitude of, of goals that are, that, that'll, that allow you to be ambitious, aggressive but on balance, achieve enough of them that you get a sensation of success. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I watched in cases where I was in an environment where that was not an acceptable um, approach and people wanted to say, make goals, set, set goals that you can easily beat. Uh, I want to be able to beat my goals because that's how that the overall comp plan is based on the idea that you outperform your plans. And time after time, all I saw was sandbagging and, mm -hmm. and, and slow walking. And it wasn't intentional. It's just what happens. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, it's... I'd much rather mediocrity became part of the culture. I'd much rather, you know, because you get very good at this. And when, in that kind of environment, if you say, okay, I'm going to set this goal and I'm going to beat it, you get really good at knowing what goal you can beat. And then you get really good at convincing people you can't possibly hit that goal. Mm -hmm. And you're just kidding yourself. So if you're a company that is, that is okay with that, then I guess setting goals that you're going to beat is fine. But if you want to outperform the industry, you've got to be aggressive and you've got to set goals that are hard to hit. I ran into this quite a bit. Um, maybe you did too. How did you keep from setting goals that were totally unattainable um, to the point where the people didn't even believe they like, why try? Yeah. Right. I've, I've run into that where as I'm talking to the people in the, in the company, they're like, there's no way we're going to hit that. So why, why run my family and my, you know, my nightlife and my, my vacations over trying to hit something we're never going to make? Yeah, yeah it, so so far out. That does happen sometimes. And what you have to be willing to do is reset a goal now in the middle of the year and, and deal with the, with the challenges of that. If, you, if, if you're four months into a year and something is just, you're not, it, you're, you were just wrong or the market conditions have just completely changed. Mm -hmm. you, gotta, you know, then as a leader, you go fight with your board or you go fight with your boss and say, this is just a miss for the benefit of the rest of the year. And achieving a and, and and achieving something rather than nothing, I want you let let uh, let, let me adjust this goal in some way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you know, it makes it doesn't do any good for anybody to say we've already failed. There's not a chance. Mm -hmm. That's demoralizing, mm -hmm. and you'll never get and you'll and then everybody's fighting you next year with this idea of aggressive, mm -hmm. you know, goal setting. It all falls apart. I saw a lot of companies during COVID adjust their goals, and it it ripped the leaders apart because they they're always. Oh, that was our goal for 24. I know. It's, it's you know, uh, for 22 or yeah. whatever it was. And, uh, and so they, they ratcheted down the goals based on you know, what was happening in 20 and 21. 
and they they reset their 2022 goals a quarter in or halfway in. And it, it looked like it tore them apart because, you know, you never reset. And, it is. It, but it, I, to your point is, if you don't, then nobody's going to believe you next year. You're, the rest of this year, everybody's going to just give up. It's demoralizing. It's affecting culture, whether you want it to or not. Yeah. And, and I think it, you, have, you have completely unpredictable things like COVID. And you look around the market and you're saying, this is affecting everybody in every market. And it's affecting our competitors the same. Adjusting down isn't really changing the objective of outperforming your competitors. You're just now resetting to you know, a, a, a market that has completely changed. That was, that was such an unusual one. Sometimes these things, though, happen just for you, because of you as a company. You have, a, you have a, a messed up launch of a new product, or you have a technology failure, or you have um, a really key resource leaves, head of sales leaves, and you've got to, you know, or you get caught up in an M&A um, activity for six months that doesn't happen, all it, but everybody got distracted. You know, they're one-off things. You don't want this to happen often, but they do happen if you're, if you're attempting to be, uh, you know, an outlier performer. You're going you're gonna to bump into these kinds of things now and then. And I think it's about, it's about the language you use in saying, what kind of company are we? Um, what are our values? What are we trying to accomplish? And how, when, when and how should you feel really good about yourself and what you did? Mm -hmm. And so it makes the language, it's all about adjusting language. It's really hard to do any of these, really almost any way you sit. If the idea is I've just left it for people to figure out, mm -hmm. it's not easy to be a, you know, a, a slow growth company. It's not easy to be a fast growth company. Everybody's looking for a reason to be at work and be engaged. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they won't. Especially now, as you said, there's young people who are not engaged unless you draw them into it. It's not, it's not part of their world. Um, I, I, I found myself often telling leaders when I am a consulting practice and, and now as I coach CEOs and executives, I'm pretty sure at least 99% of your employees don't roll out of bed in the morning going, how can I screw up the company? <laughs> we just naturally want to do a good job, you know? Now, Maybe a mediocre job, maybe a stellar job, but generally speaking, we don't show up every day to try to tear the company down to the ground. We're, we want to, we want to know what success looks like, you know. And I think that's what you were touching on there is if if the people don't understand the goals and why we're doing this and the language isn't there, then it leaves it hollow for them, and they're less likely to to chase it. Was that said accurate? Yeah, and you know the the other thing is that you know as time passes. You become victim of you become you become yourself a victim of your um, of, of sort of your previous momentum, and if you're not careful, you start you stop dreaming big, you stop you stop appreciating what you know an aggressive growth curve or a success curve looks like because you've been at it a long time, mm -hmm. and so sometimes you know the, 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 these questions we have to ask ourselves about as leaders is are we getting stale? Mm -hmm. Do we need to do some rotations in our own world? And you know, for somebody who owns their own company, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. Question, you know, so do you bring other people in to stimulate you? Do you spend time with others to get re-stimulated? Do you, you know, do you go back and revisit your core, um, the core elements of your success and question yourself and yourself and say, am I still doing that or not? And so um, I've had a lot of those too. I've had a lot of um, those moments. And usually where I go, and I can't tell you this is successful, and I can't tell you this is the right way to behave um, as a leader, 
But in order to keep that from happening, I always force myself to do something unconventional every year mm. in my planning process, mm -hmm. something unconventional. And that, that wears people out too. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I have done it as a way of keeping myself excited. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe because I've come to believe over the years that different is good. I know there's businesses that say, if we can be the best at what we do, we will always be number one. And there probably are businesses that work that way. We can just be the best, highest quality, best service, you know, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. you know, service businesses sometimes have that. But I've also seen that different, unique, you know, a step above, uh, an angle that nobody has experienced before, mm -hmm. um, you know, itself can create value mm -hmm. in the buy in buyers' minds and in stakeholders' minds. And I, I hitched onto that early on and convinced myself that at least given what my personality is and my, um, fear of ever becoming dull and stuck in a rut, I always have an element of something different. And, I, and I've been criticized even by some bosses say, you think there's value in being different just because it's different. And I, and I would say back, <laughs> yes, I do. And my experience has said that that's often true, not always, but often true. Mm -hmm. When you put that up into the market against competitors who will eventually all become complacent mm -hmm. unless something tweaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of, as you're talking about that, I'm running through various uh, companies in my mind small companies, medium, large global companies. And there is a lot of truth to that, that different as a, dis a differentiator. It's a differentiator. You know, you can have higher margins when you're different mm -hmm. on anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, but, but the differentiation has to be appreciated by the buyer. Right. And that's oftentimes tangible, sometimes intangible. Sometimes it's, it's aspirational, even for a buyer. Mm -hmm. We're going to take you down this, this road here, and here's evidence of why you can trust us about it. Mm -hmm. And you pay, you know, and you're gonna pay a little extra for that. Probably you have to give something tangible in, a, in exchange for it. Mm -hmm. But the promise doesn't have to be, you know, completely tangible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite part of your career? Was, was there a season? Maybe it was a decade. Maybe it was a, a particular uh, skill set that you really got to develop that muscle. I've had a couple of moments where. Um, performance, where performance was off the charts and it surprised me. That was, I would say there's one I'm thinking of in particular and it was just everything went right. And, and as I said, we had set these very ambitious goals and then we blew them away. And, you know, something like that, you can't repeat very often, but it, it basically put, it's like going undefeated in, for a basketball season or whatever. Like, Not everybody does it. I, it's just unbelievable when it happens yeah. to you. So I can think of one of those in particular. But I think about one early in my career, early, early. I got out of college. I went to work for this guy that I told you about for trying to. And I, I had said, and, and what the problem in cooking, cooking food, well, it, you know, is um, if, if you're, let, let's go to the pizza because the pizza is a fabulous thing. We bake bread, we cook pizzas, we're going to do all this other stuff. So the issue about a pizza is you don't just get it to a certain temperature. And when it gets there, you, you know, stick a probe in it and pull it out. Something happens all along the process from when it first goes into when it comes out. It experiences heat, it experiences, you know, all along the way. And to have a perfect um, a piece of, uh, a, a, a roll of bread or a pizza, all those, all those things that occur all along the way, five seconds in, 25 seconds in, a minute and a half in, you know, 
They're, they're all just right, the amount of humidity. There. So when we started saying, you know, and, and the problem was they were trying to say we can take the um, baker out of the formula. If you're going to open a, you know, what will eventually become the whole industry of fast food pizza, which was only just beginning then. You've got to be able to do high speed, high, you know, high volume, and absolutely consistent you know, product coming out the other end. Well, what, what they found was the um, motor controllers that would control a conveyor that would move something through a tunnel were designed to work a certain way. Temperature controllers that you know, had probes that measured, you know, thermocouples that measured air temperature and surface temperatures, they were designed to work a certain way. And what they both did was, you know, they would, they would in, in the case of speed, it would say, I'm moving on average this set of, of uh, inches per sec. Uh, but that could be happening by going like this, you know, it's going through. Same thing with temperature. I'll try and keep the temperature surface to a certain degree. We would run pizzas through these things and some pizza would be great. Right behind it was one that was burnt. Right behind it was one that was raw. And so what we said is, you know, what we're not doing is controlling what's occurring along the way by predicting what's going to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. And so we started measuring how much if this, if this pizza should be in this chamber at this temperature for five minutes and 12 seconds, we would start, we would let the motor controller accumulate counting rotations and say, how likely am I that if this continues, we're going to end up at five minutes and 27 seconds and adjust based on the expectation at the very end. And we built same with temperature. How likely is it that by the time this gets through this tunnel, the average temperature will be whatever. And you turn things up and down based on looking at what the outcome is going to be. It's, kind of crazy, but there was, there was um, um, chips that had just come out that were able to do things like that. They could count and they could compare one thing to another. There weren't yet, you know, computer chips, but we could, you could con- connect these things together and you could create algorithms in them, that, in them. And so when you watched our motor controllers, sometimes you'd see it speed up real fast and slow back and slow down because what it's shooting for is it's got a, this piece of food has to be in this heating chamber for this amount of time. Well, if for some reason, something slowed it down. You, you, well, it's going to catch itself up mm. as opposed to just try and run at the same speed. Mm. Um, so this was an example of, in order to be successful, we had to think different. We had to think differently than the way convention were. And I think that all through my life, I started thinking that that's what it's really about. Success is about imagining where you're trying to get to. And Use your brain to speed up and slow things down along the way <laughs> with the idea that that's where you're heading. Because that way, if you if you end up over here by accident, you still are adjusting your way back to where you, mm-hmm. you want to be. Mm-hmm. How much of your time did you spend in the C-suite versus owning companies? Uh, my early career, I just worked for a, a, C- a great CEO. I didn't understand business very well. I was an engineer. Um, the first exposure I had to CEOs was my second job as a, I went to work as a consultant in Chicago. I knew a lot about manufacturing and all the big consulting firms wanted um, people who understood manufacturing because at that time the Japanese were outperforming us Mm. and they had techniques to do that, that American industry hadn't really yet, um, perfected. You and I've talked about this and I was I actually had that skill set. I'd been certified in that. But as soon as, um, as soon as I got into that world, well, our clients weren't all manufacturing clients. Suddenly we had, you know, we had clients that were 
professional service firms. Yeah. We had, you know, uh, hospitals. And oftentimes, and, and so because of, because I was sort of had a skill of figuring things out and helping turn things around, I tended to be in broken turnaround situations. So I'm having a lot of interactions with CEOs. My first contact with CEOs was as a, as a consultant that was working to help them solve whatever problem they had. And I was young. I was a junior, you know, I was a kid in a consulting firm with this background in engineering. And I'm sitting in, you know, meeting these CEOs and, and, and um, starting to learn about what their life is like. And I had real encouragement from a couple of very senior partners uh, at that time. And one of the things one of them said to me, because I thought this was kind of a dumb job. It's like, you know, I know how to build things. I know how to design, you know, electronics and all that. And I'm sitting and, you know, going and interviewing people about how their job is selling. Process mapping. I'm going back to a CEO and telling what he ought to already know. Like, mm -hmm. what kind of job is this? And I, re I remember this guy saying to me, you don't understand. This guy has no one to talk to. He has no one he trusts. And if you're telling him what he already ought to know, and he probably already does, but you're doing it using a process that's independent, and, and you're either telling him something he hadn't thought of already, or you're confirming something he's thought, you're adding value to him. And I think that's probably when I, I decided, man, I'd I think I'd like to be a leader. I could see that there, what this was all about was not how smart they were mm -hmm. or how much they knew about what was going on. It was about, can you, can you um, be in that position where you're sort of that alone and get comfortable enough with what to do next that you're willing to make all those decisions? Mm. And I thought that would be a challenge to be in that job. Mm. So maybe that's when I decided I want to try and get into a, get out of consulting and get into a leadership job. And I did it. What was your first leadership role? It was with a client. It was, it was a client in California, which brought me to California. It was an insurance company that was in trouble, uh, a big one, a, a Blue Cross plan, in fact. And um, um, I worked for the CEO for about a year, helping him do this whole turnaround plan and helping him execute things. And I remember one day he sent him, and it was a whole team of us. He said he was a sad, I, I was uh, staying you know, over the weekend, he said, uh, any chance I can see over uh, on Saturday morning? I said, sure. And I remember thinking, this guy is going to offer me some stupid job in insurance. I know it. Here I am. I'm this, I'm this manufacturing guy. What am I going to say? You're door to door selling insurance. What am I going to do as an insurance executive? I don't need to get my insurance. But I did understand process. And so, and he did. He, he brought me in. He was telling me about, you know, really about his world. And the challenges, what was going on? He said, "You're the only person I think." And he he had had just fired one of the executives that he'd brought on to try and turn some stuff around. He goes, "You understand what he's doing as well as he did." You know, I know you, I trust you. And he said those. You know, what he said to me was the kind of things that triggered that old ambition. Mm -hmm. This guy trusts me. He, mm -hmm. he thinks I can help it. And mm -hmm. so I did it for that reason. And, you know, I'm suddenly a senior vice president. Mm -hmm. You know, and I and that was it. You know, and 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 I had come to this place of saying I probably want to move into a line, you know, management job and move up a leadership change. So mm -hmm. there it was. Hmm. It wasn't the position I wanted. It wasn't in an, in an industry that I ever saw myself in. And I spent the next, you know, 35 years in the insurance world. Nice. <laughs> so most of your career in the C-suite. Mm -hmm. um, if I understood you correctly the other night at dinner, you, you have some investments or some ownership in companies. What, what would you say the difference, some of our viewing, viewing audience, listening audience, 
Um, they're all leaders, but some are actually own their companies and are running it, and others are executives. Yeah. Uh, what will, is there a major difference? And, and if so, what would you say that is between being the, you know, in the C suite, having a board, and possibly a CEO boss versus being the owner? What, how, how is that different? What are, where, where's the fear or the, the, um, anxiety? How is it different? Or is it? I've been in some very small startup companies, but they were um, venture funded. And I suspect that you're, um, some of your listeners here who, who may own their own company, that w- they may have secured some financing, they may have secured debt, they may have had a business in, that they inherited, they may have pay, paid off original financing years ago, and they're operating on um, their own, you know, their own, uh, the, the fumes of their own earnings. Mm-hmm. But I think as soon as you have substantial financing that's part of what you've got to accomplish, those jobs are all very similar because you no longer can make all the decisions yourself mm. as CEO. You've got somebody who has an, in, an investment or, or lending interest in what you do, and you have to convince them that you're not crazy um, and that you're competent all the time. And so I, I'm, even though I haven't been in one of those roles where it's been my company, I mean, I, I, we do have a family-owned company that does uh, real estate development, so maybe that's not really quite true. Mm. Um, but I find that I face the same issues there. The pace of how much I can do there is a function of how much money I'm willing to put in versus how much I'm willing to borrow versus whether or not I'm willing to take on investment partners. And so that becomes a big part of it. The, the more you, uh, the, the larger the corporate setting, the more complicated those things become because corporate governance has a life of its own as companies get bigger and bigger. And as your investments go from being one or two you know, people that, you know, either, either close to you or partners or family members to a swarm of, of investors with their own, um, you know, with their own desires and needs, the harder, the harder it is for you to control destiny and the better you've got to be at casting a story. Mm. Um, and the more consistent you have to be in achieving what you, what you set out to achieve. Uh. So I think for a CEO, a big part of the job, no matter what it is, is running your company well and dealing with the things that happen in, you know, in day-to-day business, your products, your marketing, your marketplace, competition, the economy, um, you know, supply chain, inflation, all those things, um, motivating people, um, you know, uh, avoiding losing control of the labor unions unless that's you know, where you are. All that stuff that's about do you... You know, can you control your destiny? Can you keep it going? At the same time, um, situations present themselves where you've got to deal with financing challenges or you have a few difficult years. How are you going to get through that? And oftentimes you're confronted, you have, you're back with your board, your investors and others, and you've got you've to bring them along with you or you have to submit to them. Mm-hmm. And that's, really, that's just hard to do as a CEO. It's really hard when you're in a troubled place to submit to a board. And that's why I think it's so common that for bigger and bigger companies, when you, when you have a couple of um, failures, you tend to disappear. Mm-hmm. You mentioned difficulty, labor force um, a moment ago. The, during COVID, unprecedented time for sure, there was a survey done during the Great Resignation. There was a survey done of executive C-suite. And it was shocking to me, I believe it, 63, 73 something percent, somewhere in there, 
um, actually considered quitting for their own mental and emotional health. Was there ever a time in your career or times in your career that you thought about, you know what, just cash this in, I'm done? Um, I, I'll put it another way. There have been in lots of times in my career where I had hopeless feelings. Hmm. Not necessarily because the company wasn't doing well, sometimes because the company doesn't doing well, but more because I had, I felt I was a failure. Hmm. Um, either I wasn't able to achieve what I thought was going to work, or I found myself at odds with um, my board to such an extent that I felt, you know, like a failure. Mm. And, and sometimes it's like you don't know how to get out of it, and you really wrestle with it when you're when you're in those places. And hindsight always tells you you probably there was probably a path you could have taken that would have been better than one that you did. Um, but I can't imagine being a CEO and not having moments of uh, of sense of failure and. The issue of sort of hang it all up and quit, if you're successful enough financially that you can do that, you know, then I guess you say, well, I'm just going to quit. Most of us don't ever get to that place where we're so successful that we say, I don't need to work mm -hmm. until you're ready to quit. And that generally you try and time that when you feel pretty good about things. Mm -hmm. um, that always bothers me when a sports team, you know, wins the trophy, whatever league they're in. And you're like, you guys should go out on a high. You know, this guy, this guy should have retired a few years ago, wins the big championship, like now, quit now, quit. I know. I mean, they never do. It, it's never right. And, you know, I, I've tried to retire three times. I mean, the third retirement um, attempt right now. Um, and they were all very different. They were driven by different things, but I actually really thought I was kind of done. And in one case, it was like, I wasn't done. I was mm. too young. Mm. I was bored. In another case, it was like the, the company that I was running just wasn't working out. We had to deal with a, with a settlement of a, of a company that just didn't achieve its goals. And so that was depressing. And now I, you know, this, this particular um, time, it feels to me like it's all just right. Companies like doing fabulous. Mm. And, um, but I'm tired mm. and I see somebody on my team. I saw somebody on my team that was probably better for this stage than I was. Mm. And it was it, the, it, the, the question of whether to continue being so aggressive as I tend to be, or to sort of run it in a more rational way, he was more suited for that, where I was sort of stuck in my own, you know, in my own profile. Um, so this was good. <laughs> this was good. But this time I don't feel so much like a failure, mm. but I have felt like a failure. Mm. I, I had a, I was interviewed years ago by a woman who was studying um, uh, sort of the oddities of CEOs and their points of view about themselves. I don't remember what this book was called, but she interviewed 50 CEOs from all different sizes and, you know, in, of companies, types of companies, industries, all that. And somehow I, I was one that um, she interviewed. And when it was all done, she sent me um, this book. But first she said, here's the commonalities of findings. And it was five or six things that all of these CEOs had in common. They were, they were unusual things, but she was sort of doing this profile. But one was this, um, um, this syndrome of believing that was common among all of them, imposter syndrome. I don't even know if that term imposter syndrome existed at the time, but it was this idea that I really never earned to be in the position I'm in. I never deserved it. It was an accident. It was a fluke. Mm. Um, if somebody's going to find me out mm. and it'll be over. 
And I really felt, I really, I really felt that early in my career. Mm. I don't feel it as much now, but I did early in my career. And I guess it was a very common feeling among CEOs that I'm not, that I didn't deserve my success. Huh. <laughs> Have you tried to unpack that at all? Whereas why that would be? Well, because we all, and I think if any CEO was honest with you, they would tell you about things they did. And they'd always also tell you about uh, right place, right time. Mm-hmm. And right place, right time always makes you wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, it's often said it's, it's not what you know, it's the people you know. Yeah, well, the right place, right time is yeah. right up there. But I think, great, I think great leaders make the best of whatever position they're put into. But everybody's not put in the position of having the opportunity mm-hmm. with the things that they can be great at. Do you think any person could be a leader? Any person on the planet? Uh, I probably think it's a much broader, broader pool than we give credit to because there's different kinds of leaders. Like my wife is a way better leader than me at many things in business. And I know it cause I watched how she's behaved on a couple of boards that she's been involved in, but I also know her history as a, a very, very successful um, restaurateur before I met her. Mm-hmm. And I've heard the stories, and she was incredibly successful, but I watch her in her temperament. She has a very different style than I do. And watch her with our kids versus me. And I see that she has leadership skills I completely lack. They are, they are complete blind, um, blind spots for me mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, and so I know that, that um, and I've met a lot of leaders that are successful. Some of them I'm not that impressed with. Some of them I'm like, oh man, you know, she's got it going on. You know, she is tough. Mm-hmm. But that's just because I'm measuring all of them against my scale. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, and they all, but they're all successful. So clearly my scale isn't the answer. Hmm. <laughs> my value system is not the answer. But if it were, you could write a book and just say, here's how you do it. Think how many me. business books there are. <laughs> I know people who are like, I've read every business book. I've read every business book. It's like, man, you must be so bored. Mm-hmm. That's more fun to live it. It's much more fun to live it. And that is, a, that, that, that's a, one of my blind spots. I just think I, you know, because I, I tend to think, I have nothing to learn from others' failures. I have to learn those failures myself. Mm. I don't really believe that, but it's my... It's the way you act. It's, it's the way I act. And it is one of my weak spots. Mm. That I will make a mistake that was avoidable because I, 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 had to, I had to learn it on my own, mm. or I didn't believe it when somebody else told me about it, or I rationalized it. Well, that's not the dilemma behind me. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... I'm unique. Yeah, I'm, I, this is exactly. a this situation. So I guess to answer your question, I think lots and lots of people are capable of being great leaders if they're in the right, put the right challenge that's that, uh, you know, if we could perfectly match up the leadership backing for the leadership skills, we'd find a lot more people are great leaders. Mm, that's good. As opposed to, we have to train them into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's more matching people with the opportunity, the right opportunity. I've seen too many people rise to the occasion mm-hmm. in all, at all levels. And it's always like, wow, it's amazing. What concerns do you have for the, the young leaders? What, what, what's going to be their biggest challenge? I worry about ambition. And because I, I uh, my whole, when I started, I discovered ambition and it turned a switch on for me. And it, it uh, regulated my business life and a lot of my personal life too. And as I said, at the, you know, when we first started, there's side effects of that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have that as my only switch if I could go back and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. But I worry that young people are not even looking to have that switch turned on. Mm. They have a whole different orientation to 
the business world that's about what the what business world owes them as opposed to what they can um, bring to the business world. Okay. And um, because, because things don't happen rapidly, you know, there's probably lots and lots of young people saying this, I thought I was going to get this degree from this university and make a gazillion dollars. And there's not even anything that even looks like that. And so that's a, that's a shame that somebody that, that they've been given this impression that there's mm -hmm. a fast track to anything. Mm. Um, but the idea of ambition and success happens in little steps. As we talk about in other things, little steps. And if you can, if you can train yourself to set little goals and out achieve them, little goals and out achieve them, you start building a sense of, of, um, your, your potential. Mm. And I, I worry that young people don't have enough of that in their, um, in their resume or in their quiver. Mm. And I worry that there are, who's, who are going to be the ambitious risk takers of the next generation. So is, is that a failure by our generation? Is that something we have to address? Um, yeah, I think we can, I think we can mentor towards that. Find, you know, really teach that idea. Mm. I think you're teaching an idea to young people that they have, obviously it's not already necessarily in their, you know, in their, in their, um, pool right now. But I think, I think we can, it's almost like, why is ambition important? Why is ambition dangerous? Mm -hmm. Why can your life be fulfilled by being ambitious? Mm -hmm. um, why does the world need ambition? Mm. I heard um, Hillary Clinton say something in the early 90s. And I don't remember all of it. I, the, the main point that jumped out at me, though, was she basically said, Society is not, parents are not doing a good job raising their kids. So she was telling corporations, you're going to have to figure out how to train these kids, raise these kids, give them skills and decision abilities that they didn't receive at home that elder generations might have. And uh, I've grown up conservative. Um, so at the time, I was very concerned about the, the, extremely liberal outtake so, of that social social right the, the socialism that could come from that I, I don't know that that's where she was going you know as i've gotten older and looked back at just that statement by itself it was actually a fairly accurate assessment of where we find ourselves now as the we've, we've not necessarily done a good job of teaching our kids manners or being present at the dinner table or um having deep conversation you know there's there's a lot of things that that maybe we were we took for granted, you know, in our upbringing that we didn't pass to the next generation. How do you, how do you re react or respond to that thought that that there's an ownership on or on responsibility for the corporation to teach people these skills? Well, it's sad first that the family is failing at that. So you got to start start there and say that may be a reality of the of, of you know our time that families have failed and will fail and there's there's way more parenting failure than there is success. So um, where will that happen? I mean, those who have who are lucky enough to come from families that establish you know really good grounding should be very successful going forward. They will be leaders because there won't be very many of them. Uh, and then of course we ship these you know these kids off just to um, schools from, you know, from kindergarten on all the way through college that are undoing a lot of that and they just continue to do it. You know, again, there will be some that will survive that because they will either 
somehow manage to rise above it, or they'll they'll end up being being put in a track where they're le- they're less affected by it. So you're you know we're going to have this swarm of people coming out of colleges that are completely disoriented for the workplace that needs them, and it sort of does suggest that the workplace is going to have to be more active that way. Um, but it's tough. It's tough because uh, business leaders don't think of themselves in the in the business of of um, you know of fixing a generation of kids that are kind of screwed up um, in their in their orientation. But I guess if you're going to be successful as a if your company is going to be successful and your and your company has great workers and great leaders, um, you're probably going to have to put a whole lot more into those people than a generation ago. Uh-huh. Um, so it's just going to be, it's a cost of doing business. Maybe, you know, there, there's always been, Oh, you know, companies will, you know, put a fund aside for you. If you want to go get a, an MBA or get, you know, in the evening or, you know, go, this is different than that. Mm-hmm. This is a lot more, um, you know, um, uh, life skills, mm-hmm. you know, companies having to maybe be involved in, in benefits, you know, a benefits program that produces life skill, uh, strengthening for being successful in life. And being successful in life for most people these days means being able to have a sustainable income mm-hmm. in, in your family. Well, just think about it. I haven't met a 30-year-old yet, 30 or under, that even knows what it means to balance a checkbook. And, and, and I get it. I mean, like the concept's archaic, right? <laughs> I know. Or cursive writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, they started teaching that in Texas again. <laughs> they had actually stopped teaching. They have a lot of places. You know? uh, but... If, if you don't understand just the basics of getting your bank account to balance versus, oh, I got money, I can go spend it. You know, so those, even those basic life skills, uh, yeah, it's a very different conversation. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, the problem is the people that are, that could, what, what you just described could be a person that just came out of, a, you know, out of, out of a Yale, just came out of Yale with a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. No. I mean, it's like it's not like you say, "Oh, that only happens in places where people are poor or people are uneducated." No. no it's the, why. Why would any thirty-year-old know how to balance a checkbook? Somebody had to have said this is an important reason thing for you to learn how to do. But it, but it's not practical. There's no there's no actual application yeah. in the real world unless they force themselves to get out an old check register and write in. It, Every debit, you know, and, and or, or at a very, very young age before, you know, it's not allowances anymore. Go get a job as soon as you're for the summer. And, you know, and instead of allowance, I'll match, you know, your your earnings or something. And, and so we're, we're at a young age. They're forced to deal with what does it mean to have money sitting on the side and spend some of that on things you want. And, well, my gosh, the money, I thought it was there. It wasn't there. I mean, some of these things you learn because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you sort of say, oh. I guess I've got to anticipate how much money I have by keeping track of what I've already, you know, committed to. Mm-hmm. That's an unusual thought. Yeah. Or maybe just use cash, right? I don't know. I mean, I, but, but I, those things, those things aren't happening. They aren't happening, right? And so um, it's kind of it's going to be an interesting world. Anyway, I, I don't want to monopolize your time here on vacation. I'm sure you want to go have dinner. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh. You know, it's amazing. I guess I'd say this. It's amazing that capitalism has continued to flourish as long as it has. I mean, I know these are all short chapters in world history, 
but um, there is there is something to the idea of building um, products and services that other people want or that other people are going to want and being really good at. And I, I think that it's too easy um, for us to say that that's cheap, that that's, you know, that's old, that that's greedy, that that's, but I think a great amount of, of, of life learning occurs because people are in that system, either because they work in a company or because they tried to start a business or they're leading a business or they're out selling a product that those things build a great deal of, of life skills. And I, I, um, I really hope that we can reestablish capitalism as a fundamental value in the world, fundamental value. Cause I think it is compassionate capitalism. Okay. Compassionate capitalism. <laughs> that was a phrase I heard a number of actually a book. It was like compassionate time. conservative. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, uh, and, and I think that's, you know, I think that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, the, uh, you know, how do we, how do we pass the real values of care and concern economic engine to multiply our care and concern to that next generation? Yeah, that's good. Danny, honor to have you on the show today. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I'll see you around. Okay. You too.